usually once every month or two, just to see if people have questions about the instructions or any other comments about the practice that you feel would be useful to bring up. So does it seem clear about the basic sitting instructions for you? And of course, this topic on renunciation really goes directly to what we actually do when we're sitting. So feel free to interrupt the talk if something occurs to you about practice. It is, in a sense, our responsibility. If, if we don't understand what we're doing, you know, first and foremost, we, we check in with ourselves. We want to empower ourselves in a sense to, not necessarily during the sit, but sometimes even right there in the sitting period, but to reflect back, like, okay, what am I trying to do? I mean, why am I sitting? What's the intention? What's the means? Because it's easy, you know how it is, it's easy just to kind of go through the motions. Well, I know I'm supposed to be sitting here. It's like we, what we're doing is we're practicing imitating being a meditator, but we don't really, you know, for whatever reason, we sort of lost what it is that it's about. And so there, there is a place in practice for information, you know, for having a conceptual, intellectual map of what we're trying to do, because it helps us keep on target. So it's like, um, you know, how it is, any conceptual map. If we don't have a map, we're lost. We don't even know how to interpret um, our experience. Like, how do we know whether we're moving in the direction we want to go in or not? What's our aspiration? So, you know, one of the uh, useful things about this topic of renunciation, it frames our whole spiritual path and it also frames our sitting meditation practice, or any kind of formal sitting or walking meditation practice. I mean, in the most immediate level, when we come to a place like common ground or you find a quiet spot at your house or apartment, I mean, it's a huge renunciation. Like all the things you could be doing, you're giving up for that 30 minutes, that 45 minutes, that 20 minutes. And, you know, compared to our busy lives and compared to the sophistication, the complexity of the activity of our lives, you know, with all of our being tuned into the world now with electronics, different information systems, and tuned into all of our friends so we know what they're doing at any time. To, to take some time and to let that go. And even with our bodies, you know, especially with sitting meditation practice, but even walking practice has some of this, but especially sitting practice where, you know, we've got this body that's meant to move, designed to move, enjoys moving for the most part. And for this period of time, we're letting go of movement. I mean, obviously the body still moves some, but we're not intentionally moving the body. So 
we're simplifying you know our situation by just being in one place not moving not looking about generally choosing places where the sounds if you know perfect world the sounds are just the sounds of birds and wind blowing through trees or maybe the background hum of a furnace and maybe some other non-disturbing sounds but pretty much it's a real simplicity from our usual experience of sound out there in the world you know it's really hard for us when we hear talking even if it has nothing to do with us it's very hard not to tune into it and not to be disturbed by it you know it's like when we're listening to a radio we may think we're not really listening but the words have an impact i mean to the degree we are conscious of the words they're having an impact in the mind same with images you know any image we see whether it's a self-created image in our mind or you know actually watching observing something it makes an imprint and generally not always but generally or certainly most of the images we see most of the sounds we hear and many of the touches we feel smells we smell taste we taste they're agitating you know even really pleasant experiences agitating you know mm, that tastes so good but the kind of relishing the taste often for us is agitating for the mind you know it's like mm it's like uh, the mind is stimulated it's agitated it's not calming down so both pleasant and unpleasant experiences tend to agitate the mind not always but often so when we set up our meditation practice it's nice to remember you know just to have this word and again it's not the important thing that we don't take the meditation or this whole exploration of renunciation as a big should you know the world is bad we should retreat from the world it's really an exploration of joy we're looking at what leads to joy to healing to a sense of relief so when we you know have some time we put aside some time in the morning or in the evening or whatever works for you then have that attitude of yeah I'm really really taking care of myself so when you come into that quiet corner in your apartment you know and you set yourself up in a comfortable sitting posture and you're there just looking out the window or looking at your altar or staring at some plants in your room you know whatever you have in front of you begin to appreciate the joy of the simplicity like how nice it is as a human being to have 30 minutes 45 minutes whatever you have to not have any responsibilities other than to just be here I mean what a relief that is and and really it's pretty rare in the great scheme of things for a human being to have some time to just be there's a joy to that and to really tune into that joy of resting the joy of simplicity it's you know in, in Buddhist meditation practice it's not an end in itself we use that sense of relief and resting and eventually some calm to get to know the mind to explore investigate the mind 
but initially we want to just attune to this. And you see it's a real paradigm shift for us because the way we've been wired or conditioned is we seek stimulation by doing, by becoming, by consuming, by having sense experience. And now we're, now we're kind of orienting toward another joy. Because there is a certain joy in consuming and exploring and doing. There's no doubt about it. But it's, a, it's an ephemeral joy. It's, all, it's always limited because you've got to keep recreating it because you do it and then it ends. Or you do it and then, you know, it, it loses its uh, sense of uh, pleasantness, you know, whatever it is. Eventually it's not so pleasant anymore. You know, the first few bites of your favorite food, it's more pleasant than the last bites. Often the last bites aren't really that pleasant. We're just finishing the plate because it's there or, you know, we think we want it, but it actually isn't even a pleasant experience. And this is true with many things we consume or we get involved with. So instead of orienting toward those kind of happinesses, there's this real paradigm shift of noticing it's subtle, but really profound. Like, it's really nice not to have to do anything. It's really nice peace in, in the Buddhist world, in the Buddha's world, the Buddha's mind, what he discovered and talked about for 45 years when he was teaching after his deep insight, was that peace is the highest happiness or the deepest happiness. There are many kind of happinesses. So he didn't deny all the other kind of happinesses that you and I know really well. He didn't say, you're wrong, that's not happiness. He just said that that this, this happiness of stillness or peace or simplicity, it's in a way, it doesn't stand out initially because, you know, if we, if we eat Doritos or, you know, sunbursts or, you know, some of those candies or foods that just like have either a lot of sugar or a lot of salt or a lot of something, you know, and then somebody hands us something really refined and nutritious, well, it doesn't taste like much, you know, if we've got this other taste in our mouth. But we can cultivate a taste, an appreciation for quiet, for simplicity, for stillness, for peace. And this is really understanding the joy of renunciation. It's not an aversion to the world as much as it is an attraction to simplicity. And of course, the interesting and actually really wonderful thing is then when we inevitably get pulled back into the complexity of the world and we've got jobs to do and responsibilities, activities, it's the mind is more fresh and nimble, not so burdened, not so dependent, needy for all of this experience. So we learn something in those moments of renunciation and simplicity when we take our 30 minutes, we take our 45 minutes every day, and we train the mind to become a devotee of ordinariness. You know, the ordinariness of breathing in and breathing out, or the ordinariness of just feeling the sensations in the body sitting, or just more generally the awareness of the present moment, hearing feeling the body, feeling the breath in the body, knowing 
mental activity is just mental activity. And not, it's not that we're trying to feed off of any particular experience that we're having, any particular you know, tactile experience in the body, any particular mental activity, thought or memory or fantasy about the future or any particular sound we're hearing, particular image that we're seeing. It's not about that. It's really more about the mind that's independent of any particular experience. That's what we're tuning into. That's why there's an emphasis on simplicity. I mean, in a way, you know, that whole word simplicity, you know, it's not so much like um, when we're sitting in a very quiet room with not so much clutter around. In a way, it's not more simple because, you know, visually speaking, there's a lot of visual information even here at Common Ground. And even when there's no talking, you know, the auditory experience is still very complex, the, you know, the different sounds. So by simplicity, what we really mean, you know, and a lot of people meditate in the forest or outside, and there's a real complexity of sound and sights. But the, the difference is, the simplicity is really the simplicity or the absence of reactivity in the mind. That's really what it's about. So to promote the, this experience of renunciation, of simplicity, we choose ways of practicing and places to practice that aren't going to trigger a lot of reactivity. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Because what we're trying to do is notice what it's like when the mind or heart is free of reactivity. And what we notice is, boy, it feels good. It feels really nice when the mind is not in a reactive state. And then when we get a deeper taste of the non-reactive mind, then it really starts to stand out when the mind starts to react. It's just like it's a burden. You know, even little things, like some of us this last weekend were down on a retreat Thursday night to, uh, to Monday. We do a retreat over Labor Day weekend every year, about 32 of us. And, um, and then often, like when you come back from a four-day retreat like this or a longer retreat, even little things, you know, should I have scrambled eggs or French toast? You know, they, you got that choice in the morning. Or you go out to a restaurant. And even having to make a choice is agitating for the mind a little bit. Like, uh, because it's a setup. The mind gets, when we have a choice, the habit, it doesn't have to be this way. It's just our habit, though. The habit is like, well, what do I really want? Do I want French toast or do I want scrambled eggs? And then, then we're in this like, well, I've gotta, now I've got to make the right choice because there's a me, and me always has a preference, you know, and so we have to figure it out. Do I want to get married or do I want to be single? Do I want to work here or do I want to work there? Do I want people to see me in this light or do I want people to see me in that light? Do I see myself as a Buddhist meditator or do I see myself as a sort of a rebel who doesn't sort of, you know, get serious about anything? You know, it's like all of these things are agitating. Having to be somebody is agitating. Having to be somebody who wants scrambled eggs now is agitating. It's just, in a way, it's a lot easier for someone to say, we're having scrambled eggs today, 
you know. <laughs> and then we just kind of receive it, or this is how it is now. You know, the body's like this, or the weather's like this. Can you imagine how complex it would be to have to decide what weather you want every day? You know, for the first day it might be easy, you know, 68, no humidity, or whatever you like, 78, 88, no humidity, you know, no bugs. I guess that's not really weather. <laughs> you know, and some clouds or no clouds. or. But then after a while, you know, am I bored with this? Do I want something different? But I think I'm the person who really likes this, you know, and it, it just gets agitating to have to choose. So what we learn in meditation practice and then more generally in this on this path of awakening, what we're really learning is how uh, eventually how limiting it is to try to seek a deep happiness by you know getting involved in all these choices and how there is available a happiness that doesn't really have to do with all of these choices and this is what we touch this is why it's so relevant the different forms that we take on in our meditation practice or when you go on retreat or just generally in your life when you maybe just as an experiment you take on some kind of renunciation like okay for three weeks I'm only going to eat you know one meal a day let's say or for one day I'm not going to eat any food I'm going to fast and just have a little juice or you know for I know somebody uh, community member who gave away her TV set and said okay I'm not going to watch TV anymore and so you might experiment with some of these kinds of letting go some of these renunciations just to realize the happiness of not having to figure out should I watch TV or not watch TV should I watch this program or this program is two hours too much or not enough you know would I be happy if I watch a little bit more or would I have been happier not watching any these are all agitating choices you know when I go on the internet you know to the websites where I get my news you know I always have to decide you know how they always have these provocative uh, headlines you know do I read this article or not read this article do I need this information or not you know will I be missing something if I don't read this or will I be missing something if I don't go out with my friends you know and so we're it's agitating so when we sit in a quiet place and train the mind to be devoted and interested with the present moment experience of the body and mind of breathing of sensation of mental activity not as content but just mental activity thoughts are just thoughts emotions are just emotions and so it's not about the particular experience that's being known but it's about how we're knowing the experience we're knowing the experience free from reactivity or at least this is the direction we're moving in like we're experimenting and basically any experience is fine once we've sort of chosen a place to sit a time to sit amount of time to sit a way of sitting a particular technique like watching the breath or being open to sounds or feeling the whole body sitting feeling the subtle energy of the body so whatever the particular technique might be in our meditation practice then it's not about the particular experience it's about learning how to receive the experience free of reactivity
to just allow it to be. So we're not the doer or the chooser, the one who's choosing what to do or choosing what experience we like or don't like or what we want more of and what we want less of. We're really exploring the experience of non-reactivity, the simplicity. So in a way, first of all, we discover that that part of the mind that's always reacting and choosing and figuring out, that that's a choice. We, that part of the mind doesn't need to be active. It can actually quiet down and for periods of time drop away. It's like that whole self that is the chooser, the doer, the figuring outer, that can die, that self can die or disappear. <coughs> when that happens, I'll give you my opinion, it's a real relief. And you can see for yourself how it is. And then we cultivate a taste for it. It may feel a little weird at first or awkward or even scary at first. Like, you know, where's Mark? But you'll, we get used to that, that radical simplicity of being instead of doing, being the doer. Just being, just being the experience, being the knowing, being the non-reactive knowing, the non-interfering knowing. So we cultivate a taste for that simplicity. And then the great thing is, over time, the, the remembering of that, the sort of reestablishing of that lightness and that freedom and that, that way of not reacting, it's actually possible to bring it back then in the world. Like when we're with people and we're talking and, and we're making choices, but we're not the one making the choice. You know, and we're doing, but we're not the one doing. There's doing. You know, you're there playing basketball, or you're there knitting, or you're there talking with your friends. But it's just a natural activity. It's just con causes and conditions doing their thing. And what's really uh, apparent in the moment is the freedom. The freedom from the reactive mind the judging mind, the planning mind, the deciding mind, the choosing mind. Doesn't mean there isn't choosing. Doesn't mean there isn't doing. And this is really important. People uh, think of Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddha as, oh, I see, it's all about sitting still away from the world and then you're happy. But that's not the point. The point is you sit still away from the world in order to discover something about the mind that we then basically do the second part of practice, which is learning to take what we learn in a relatively simple environment out into a more complex environment where there are more triggers for our old habits. But now we have another way of being and then we're trying to take that into the world. Even though out in the world, the old way of being is going to get triggered. You know, we'll see things we really want or we hear things we really don't want to hear and that will trigger us to want to control or decide to do something else or decide to fix it. But we'll remember this other possibility, that being at ease, free, no matter the conditions. And then if we decide to do something to fix or change, it's not because we're trapped in habits of reactivity. It's because it's a good thing to do, because it helps people. Helps myself, helps other people. It doesn't harm anybody. So it doesn't prevent us from acting out of compassion, out of a sense of wanting to take care of things, take care of our families or take care of our community. But it's not based on a, on a dependency. And this is a, 
a beautiful image or aspiration. So when you get confused about why you're practicing, you know, why do I get up, you know, half an hour early, earlier, 45 minutes earlier every day in my busy life to sit there when I'm sleepy, you know, paying attention to my breath, which is so boring. And what am I going to be learning? I mean, what do you actually learn paying attention to your breath? Why would anybody do this? And it's so easy for doubt to creep in. So you need to have some aspiration, some ideal. We need a goal in practice, even though the practice itself, the mechanism of practice is letting go of any goal. It's just sort of being. We have to have some reason, some understanding why we're doing that practice. So you can bring an image of yourself being in the world with your responsibilities, with your duties, even with your inclinations, you know, what you like doing. But being free of reactivity, free of the weight of fear, free of the weight of neediness or dependency. But not dependent on being passive or being sort of in retreat, you know, in your quiet little room, your quiet little meditation center. But out there in the world, but not burdened by it. So you need that image and then you need some kind of sense why the work you do when you're doing your daily sit or going on a retreat and doing a lot of sitting and walking practice, then you have to understand, so what's the relationship between this formal training I do, going on retreat, sitting, walking, meditation practice, and that image I have of being in the world and free, free of greediness, free of aversion, free of reactivity, free of being burdened in the activity of human life. What's the relationship? And so then what we're doing is we're trying, we, we need to remember, oh yeah, the Buddha says, and a lot of other people since the time of the Buddha who've taken up the practices the Buddha talked about, found out for themselves that when you do this practice, you discover a way of being, a way of relating, or a wisdom, I guess we could say, or a view, a way of understanding that frees us from this limitation of acting from a self point of view. I mean, we all know what it feels like to be acting from a self point of view. We don't necessarily know the opposite of that, or the absence of that, maybe is better. But we know what it feels like when there's a really contracted sense of self, like someone's embarrassed us or we've embarrassed ourselves or you know we feel like a failure or we feel like we're better than someone just that visceral feeling of me and you me better you bad or me bad you better we all know what that contracted sense of self is like and we know how it keeps us caught and tight and burdened so we can then begin to imagine freedom from that and we can see how in a simple environment, in a quiet place in our house, being with the sensations of the breath or with the body, in a very simple way, in that simple environment, we can practice not being a self. Sort of being really sensitive, awake, you know, uh, vividly, profoundly awake. So we're not like getting into some trance, which is another misconception about meditation practice. 
that we're trying to concoct some trance state where we're just off in la-la land. It's just the opposite. It's a vivid wakefulness, real sensitivity. We're sensitive to sounds. We're sensitive to sensations. We're sensitive to smells, everything. Even though we may train in particular senses more than others at different times, we're developing a heightened sensitivity, a heightened clarity in order to practice not reacting to what is being known, what's being sensitive, what we're being sensitive to. So can we be intimately aware of the in-breath, the out-breath? Can we feel it in every detail without any wavering? So a continuity of attention as the breath comes in, the continuity of attention with the breath goes out, and just letting it be. So that's the freedom, like, can we be aware of the breathing process without trying to fix it or control it, or on the other hand, without thinking it's irrelevant and ignoring it or just sort of pretending like we're paying attention but not really being awake for it. Can we be both vividly there and free, free of the habit of reacting to it one way or another? So that's what we're doing, and that's what connects with the world that we really, the aspiration that we really have, which is to be out there in the world but not creating a burden for ourselves or for others, not suffering in the world. So we've got a little microcosm of the world, you know. That's what sitting, walking, meditation practice is. It's a microcosm of the world. Except here, you know, in this world, the big deal is breathing in or breathing out or knee pain or an irritating sound or an irritating thought. That's kind of the most of it. And it can get, you know, anybody who's practiced for a period of time knows that it can get really intense in sitting practice. In some ways, more intense because the sensitivity develops. So even though we're not in a really complicated, often, situation when we're meditating, the mind becomes really sensitive. So small things become very big. A tickle becomes very big. Pain in the body becomes very big because we're bringing a lot of awareness, a lot of sensitivity, clarity. So it sort of makes, uh, uh, like in an exponential way really, makes things bigger, the way we see emotion. There's this wonderful line, maybe I'll just share, from uh, the Buddhist teachings. Mara is the personification of all of our self-centered habits of greed and aversion. Mara says to a group of young monks, so there's often stories in Buddhism um, where you know this force of our delusion creeps up on us. So you can just imagine a bunch of young practitioners doing their best to follow the teachings from their teacher and doubt arises them, you know, like maybe he doesn't or she doesn't really know what he or she's talking about, you know. Maybe I'm wasting my life doing this meditation practice. And so this is their voices in their mind saying, do not abandon what is visible here and now and run off to distance things. So this is the voice of doubt that I mentioned. You know, like we think that, oh, here I am meditating, but I could be out there in the world having fun or learning something or being effective in the world. And here I am. And so Mara, 
this voice of ignorance is saying, do not abandon what is visible here and now and run off to distance things. Sort of like, uh, I, maybe I am idealistic about meditation practice, thinking I can sort of get freedom. And the young monks reply, we have abandoned what is distant and run towards what is visible here and now. The Buddha has said, worldly pleasures are distant, of uncertain result, produce much suffering and despair, and are a continual disappointment because of their impermanence. That's, I'm adding that piece. But this Dhamma, this practice of being mindful, is visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting one to come and see, guiding one inward, and capable of being experienced by the wise. They're just repeating a very famous and common teaching the Buddha repeated over and over again. It's, it's his basic definition of Dhamma, the way things are, that it's uh, visible here and now. So he's not talking about something uh, mystical like, well, you got to just take my word for it, you know. It's just, you know, you, you know, people don't, you can't see it now, but behind this curtain over here, there's something really special. And if you do what you're supposed to do, you'll see it someday. He's really pointing to something that's visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting one to come and see. So when we look, we'll feel a natural attraction. If we take the time to settle down, we'll feel a natural attraction to this work. If we give it some time, I mean, if we actually settle down and look, take a good look, inviting one to come and see, guiding one inward. And I like that because that instruction basically says that the practice, the path is organic. Once you get started, you know, you might need some help from a, a spiritual friend to say, maybe a little bit more to your right or maybe a little bit more to your left. But there's a certain naturalness to the development of mindfulness or awareness. It kind of leads us inward. Once we get a taste of this inner renunciation or this not clinging, not grasping, not reacting, it, just that sort of intuitive sense of that, that being really wholesome and a kind of happiness that's beyond ordinary sense happiness, it sort of draws us in like a magnet, guiding one inward and capable of being experienced by the wise. So I'll leave it here. I'm assuming that some of you have some thoughts about this from your own life that you can share with the group. Experiences of renunciation that have seemed, that seem relevant, have seemed useful for you. And that visceral feeling of freedom in that experience of simplicity, even just in moments. So don't, it doesn't have to be like your whole life was transformed and now you never are reactive again. But just periods of time or certain places in your life where there's less reactivity and also places in your life where there's maybe more reactivity and what you're learning from that because we learn a lot from going in the wrong direction probably as much as we do from going in the right direction and of course any questions that you have about the talk tonight so what comes to mind
But there was. I was happy most of the day, like 60 percent. Mm-hmm. But I noticed the reactivity was there, but it was like it was four feet away, knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get in. I was going to Yeah. And now that sounds bizarre, but that's all I've ever thought about. That. It's yeah. It's like something's growing, something's working, and it's getting better. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. If you didn't hear everything that Nick said, he, he was just saying he was working today. And uh, something like equanimity seemed to be present because uh, mostly he wasn't reactive. And he felt that it was there knocking, but, but about four feet away. And I, I understand that experience, and maybe some of you do too, where because it isn't like yes or no. You know, we have a lot of conditioning in the direction of reactivity. But the more we practice, it's like we're growing this other way of being, this way of non-reactivity. But it's not like all of a sudden the habits of reactivity are gone. It's just that in periods of time, the way of non-reactivity is predominant. But the habits of reactivity are there. They're just not dominant. The more we orient toward non-reactivity or mindfulness or peacefulness, then this falls away because it's not getting watered. It's not getting reinforced through the process of getting identified with it and acting it out. So that sounds great. And that's exactly how I experience it too. You know, sometimes the reactivity in my life is dominant and I'm a reactive human being. Other times I'm not outwardly that reactive, but I hear it knocking on the door. And there's a little inner torment because it's like I kind of want to react, but I know better. And other times it's very distant, like you described, four feet away, 100 feet away. And I can sort of see the old reactive self somewhere creeping in the corners. But it's pretty much not having a a negative effect on my life. And sometimes I don't see it at all. And there's just a sense of real, a real depth to the freedom or a real sense of lightness or relief, like the mind or heart is really free of reactivity for little periods of time. Thanks for sharing that, Nick. When did you have a thought? Well, I, I think this is related. I, I was just reflecting on how, uh, you know, after coming back from long retreat, just, you know, and, and really in that period of renunciation, which, you know, my mind can get so settled and so peaceful. And I, I just remember the feeling of, like, not even wanting to turn on the radio, not wanting to engage in movies. I mean, really, just, just kind of wanting to, really wanting to save or just hold on to that ease. Um, and now, kind of thrust back into, you know, a lot of pressures and things that challenge me. So I just, when I was just sitting here, I just want to go home and just watch an episode of Deadwood. You know, it's kind of like, it's <laughs> a weird thing. And, I, and I'm so frustrated. I'm so frustrated and disappointed. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just kind of you know, my, my mind says, you just need to go live in a place like the Forest Refuge, and, you know, which is not realistic. And so, uh, just sort of seeing that lack of strength. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things to say. Thanks for sharing that. I think that kind of frustration, a lot of us, especially people who've been practicing for a while, recognize. 
And you know, one of the things that happens the more we meditate is we get some talent at calming down and touching really peaceful states of mind. But we've got to be careful not to confuse the peace we get from concentration from being in a beautiful, quiet, protected place. We have to be careful in confusing that with the real fruit of practice. It's fragile. Samadhi or concentration or the peacefulness that comes from the protected states of mind is fragile. It, don't, it doesn't take care of us when we're back out in the world where all of our triggers are. So we, ha we need to be reminded of that so when we do get in those calm and peaceful places, we don't do what we're inclined to do, which is go like this. Ah, I am so glad to be in this safe, protected place. And this is what meditators do when they get to that calm place. Uh, in an inner way, they feel like, oh, I'm there. I'm in a peaceful place. I've gotten to where I needed to go. They take the pleasant feeling of the meditation personally, and they stop practicing. And the, and the key here is to use the calm to see this, to see what the mind is really made up of. Because out in the world where we're going to be, our, our, our conditioning is going to be triggered, there's really only one thing that helps. I mean, it's really nice to go back and do your hour sit every day or two hours of sitting every day and kind of get your, get a little bit of samadhi, a little bit of that calm back. And then, but it's a little schizophrenic where you get a little touch of peace and then you're a wild maniac. And, then, <laughs> and this is how it is for a lot of us meditators. And uh, so what we want to do is we want to, like that frustration uh, is like an incentive to want to go deeper basically and to not uh, rest in the pleasantness that arises in our meditation but to really look into the mind and look into the mechanism of the mind, that the mechanism of the mind that is fundamentally attached or attracted to pleasant experiences and repulsed, averse to unpleasant experiences. We have to see that that's an option. Because otherwise, when we're around strongly pleasant and unpleasant experience, like the possibility of embarrassing ourselves or the possibility of real success, the attachment or the repulsion is going to throw us off and we'll be back in hell. So in Buddhism there's this real active part. It's not tranquility for the sake of tranquility. It's tranquility in order to understand the very nature of the mind so that we're, we're free of this deep conditioning to react to pleasant and unpleasant. Is there anybody in this room that isn't still deeply attached to what you really want <laughs> and deeply afraid of what you're really afraid of. We are. And given that truth, given that we can say that we are, then of course we have a real incentive because that in itself is suffering. To be somebody who would be, to be somebody who thinks that I'll be really happy if this happens to me and I'll be really screwed if this happens to me, that itself is stressful. So if we want to live in this world, then we, then, we're, then we kind of are saying, okay, I'm willing to be a suffering human being. If we have some sense it doesn't have to be this way, then that's this other exploration that we're, we're really looking deeply. Yeah, Maria. Um, I guess 
when you use the word understand. Um, you don't mean it cognitively or intuitively. Yeah. You know, because I, I have to admit, I didn't start meditating a million years ago um, because I wanted to understand my mind. I did it because I wanted to escape suffering. Yeah. Or I wanted to, I guess, believe my suffering. Yeah. Can you hear Maria? And I don't know that, I mean, I've had a lot, I've been in and out of meditation. I haven't done it consistently, and I don't even sit at home, although I'm beginning to want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, but I'm confused about the mechanics. Like, do I fall out of bed onto my cushion? <laughs> do I get coffee first? Or, you know, like, you know, all that stuff. So I have to wait before I do it. Mm -hmm. So we can, I, I'll consult with you individually. But I guess um, I haven't gotten a lot of what I would consider sort of insights in the way I'm used to thinking of insights in, let's say, my job. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, more intuitive. Well, uh, that I think you probably, I mean, I think you should be able to see that. Like, you know, that quote I read, um, immediate, mm -hmm. visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting one to come and see, guiding one inward, capable of being experienced by the wise. So the Buddha's not talking about something, you know, you just got to take my word for it, you know. You're much better off, <laughs> you know. You're much happier. I know you don't know it, but you're much, you know, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. It really is something we should have a sense of. Not so much, I mean, the, tr the difficulty is it's gradual, but it's real, it is identifiable, but it's, uh, we need kind of a, a long view. You know, we have to look at the degree of reactivity back then and the degree of reactivity now. If, when that happened to me back then, you know, I lost it for a few days. Now it happens. And I feel like, you know, reactivity is knocking on the door, but it's four feet away, like Nick said. You know, and so, well, that didn't happen when I was 20, or that didn't happen five years ago, or whatever. So, that more gradual thing, and I don't, I think there is some intellectual piece to it, but it, but the insight is more intuitive. It's just, it's like a recognition about, you know, the mind itself an understanding about the mind, what it is and what it isn't. And, you know, mostly we just don't even know about the mind. And then when we get, when we do, someone, someone forces us to have a, an opinion about it, it's not really based on any real exploration. But the more we actually make a point of exploring the mind, it's really about not wanting to suffer. So you said you started out with not wanting to suffer. Well, that doesn't change, but what changes is what that means. Like, for example, who's the who that doesn't want to suffer? You know, and what's suffering? So we begin with that question, but we don't have an idea of who I am that doesn't want to suffer and what I even mean by suffering. What is the experience of suffering? What does that feel like? Where does, how does that arise? But we get pretty sophisticated the more we pay attention about who the who is and about what the what is, what the suffering is. And uh, that really helps because the unpracticed person cares just as much, just as much about not suffering as a very practiced person. The difference is, is the practiced person has more of a sense of what he or she's doing. 
because they've made a lot of mistakes and learned from them, you know, and they've taken some instruction from a few people that know what they're doing, and you know, and then sort of become independent in the teachings. Basically, they see, well, this this makes sense, not because he said it or she said it, but because I've done it and it works, and I see that directly in my experience. Yeah, Bill. Um, I just got started the retreat. I guess what I'm discovering is the integration between the microcosm of meditating and the macrocosm of the real world of the education. And it almost seemed like I came back with a lot of coolness. And, you know, yesterday was great. I was great all day. And then I just started, it almost started, the lens just started bordering, bordering on the version, like you were saying. Like I, the thought of the most way forward help just really like, so I went, you know, I went to the small sort of cafe over here. And I went there and I just wanted to go on the door. And I wanted to get out of it. And then I was not even coming to meditation tonight because I was just meditating for seven two hours straight. But I was still in agitation. Like, it forced me to become even stronger than what, yeah. was, what I learned. So I definitely need more practice, obviously. But, so I was like, that might help me. Yeah. And this is a this is a central point in practice. It's it's good to kind of really get this. There's this is I think it fits with how the Buddha taught, but a lot of it is just my own interpretation, but about the mechanism, like how the practice actually works. So the a lot of the forms, a lot of the training we do is we're amping up sensitivity. It's not like we can go directly to wisdom. Wisdom is an organic thing that arises when the conditions are right, or what we call insight. So when we see something that we haven't seen before, we, the, our understanding kind of changes, undergoes some kind of a paradigm or transformation, paradigm shift or transformation. We can't just make it or you know, make that happen. We can set it in motion by cultivating the conditions that make it happen. And so what are those conditions that make insight happen? Well, what we can do, what's relatively easy for a deluded human being like us to do, is we can increase our sensitivity. You know, just like we can become more distracted and scattered, we can become less distracted and less scattered, more sensitive, more aware, just more aware of what we're aware of, more aware that seeing is seeing, hearing's hearing, touching's touching, instead of lost in our thoughts about things. That we can do. Now the thing about becoming more sensitive is it gets overwhelming. The reason we opt for distraction is it's, uh, it's not pleasant being sensitive in the world we live in with the understanding that we have, which is why our whole economy is based on distraction, because it's intense being sensitive. So we dull ourselves out in, in many kinds of ways, and then we hype ourselves up when we're too dull, you know, and we, we're kind of in this roller coaster, both ends being really dull and being really hyped up are ways of distracting ourselves from sensitivity. But when we take on the train the different trainings that are part of this this path, we get more sensitive, more kind of in balance and sensitive. And it's um, it hurts basically to be sensitive. We don't want to go to cub. 
We don't want to go to Rainbow. We don't even want to come to Common Ground. Uh, there are a lot of serious practitioners really into the community and into the practice who don't want to come because they don't like to be around crowds. It's too much, you know? And I, I know that feeling. So, but here's the key. The sensitivity sets the ground, the foundation for insight. Because it's being sensitive and then bringing the sense of fearlessness to the sensitivity that sets us up for insight. So if we're sensitive and all we're doing is reacting to the sensitivity, that's not going to help. But if we're sensitive, really maybe after a retreat, hypersensitive in a way, so hypersensitive there's nowhere to run, <laughs> which is even better, you know. Then we have only one choice, which is to relax, to open in the midst of that sensitivity, in that midst of the chaos of our minds, the chaos of our bodies, and the chaos of our life situation. Because they're all pretty chaotic. You know, the world is chaotic. And to really open to that, well, what kind of heart and mind can open to chaos, to insecurity, to vulnerability? Only wisdom can. So in a way, we're provoking wisdom by deepening sensitivity, becoming more sensitive, and then instead of running when it starts to get overwhelming, relaxing, opening, and uh, basically relying on two things, the sensitivity and the confidence that we don't have to run from all the triggers, all the, the impulses to run, to stay put in the middle of the sensitivity, to stay, to kind of go to Cub anyway, you know, to go to Common Ground anyway, to make the phone call anyway, to, you know, clean up the mess anyway, to just do whatever comes next anyway, to, fearlessly, and to discover that it isn't about the chaos, it's not the chaos that's the problem, it's the fear of the chaos, it's the reactivity to the chaos. And that provokes the, uh, the wisdom or the insight that actually I can be in the middle of a breakup and not freak out. Now the force of freaking out is like Nick described. It's there knocking on the door. You sure you don't want to freak out? I mean, you have every reason to freak out. <laughs> the person you lived with for the last 10 years is no longer in your life, you know? Or you lost your job or, you know, whatever. You deserve to freak out. But you, you realize, you know, no, I can, I can just trust being right in the middle of this total uncertainty and insecurity and uh, just do what comes next. Just keep doing what comes next. I think we have to leave it here, David. Do you just want to make a short comment? Yes, this, um, this, uh, about this being uh, super and, um, sensitive. Is, is that more, in my mind's eye, I sort of see that as an opening to seeing in a more clear fashion, your conditioning. Yeah. And that you're really not as far away from that. I mean, you sort of delude yourself a little bit in thinking that you're farther away from that since you're agitated when you're around a lot of people. It seemed to me that that would just be a, another nice thing to be able to see within yourself that, oh, this is part of my conditioning. Yeah, that the problem is the conditioning. It's never the present moment that's the problem. It's our reaction to the present moment that's the problem. And so, in a sense, the peace we're looking for is never far away. It's just that it's just well guarded by our habits of reactivity. 
And uh, in a moment, if we have enough confidence and enough sensitivity, it can just be abandoned. And so this is a good place to end. Thanks, David. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a deep breath or two. And we always end by reflecting on our deepest aspiration for our lives. To live in a way that supports the well-being, the peace, the happiness of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.